Welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Kitsy Kuykendall is one of Bluegrass Music's most beloved personalities. Her late husband, Pete Kuykendall, founded Bluegrass Unlimited magazine, fondly referred to as the Rolling Stone of Bluegrass. Kitsy and Pete have dedicated their lives to promoting, supporting, and spreading the music of bluegrass throughout the world. For over 50 years, Bluegrass Unlimited has been the premier resource for this music community, and Kitsy's energy, personality, and knowledge have been factors in its success and longevity. Daniel sat down with Kitsy at the 2019 IBMA World of Bluegrass Business Conference, where Kitsy is referred to as the Queen. They talked about the origins of the magazine, its current state, its lasting impact, and the legacy of her late husband, Pete Kuykendall. So enjoy this episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast with the always engaging Kitsy Kuykendall. sitting here with Miss Kitsy Kuykendall. Now, Miss Kitsy, how did you first meet your late husband, Pete? I first met my late husband, Pete. Uh, I was married to someone else, and his wife, Marion, was still alive, and they were running Bluegrass Unlimited's wonderful festival at Indian Springs, Maryland, which was one of the premier festivals ever, and one of the most important festivals, in my opinion. I'm just going off a little bit on this because he was one of the first people to bring a lot of artists east who never played. And he knew that because he traveled around selling his magazine and people like the Whites, I can name lots of bands and I won't. And so that was very significant for the advancement of national bluegrass music. But I, I loved that festival and I went to it every twice a year. It was twice a year. And, um, I met him, you know, I knew him. And then life progressed, and uh, his wife, Marion, unfortunately died uh, a very early death. And uh, I was not married, and I I was somewhere dancing around like I do, being noisy, whatever Kitsy does. And he asked me to go out on a date, and I said, me? (laughs) Just like that. Very subtle. Sure. So we started dating and uh, we were, uh, let's see, that was, I married him in 86. So that was like 84 or something like that. And um, we just started going out. And of course, I had been as a fan involved with the music, but it was really, you know, I was a little awestruck to tell you the truth. I was seeing all the, meeting all these people, you know, my heroes and everything. And We just started dating and we uh, ended up getting married. Who were some of the artists that first got you interested in bluegrass music? I would say the Country Gentleman. Really? I lived in the D.C. area, so you're talking about who was playing uh, the Birchmere, and at, which at that time was not a nationally famous uh, music site. Uh, it was just getting started in a little dumpy place in a shopping center. And my first husband and I uh, both liked bluegrass music. And uh, also uh, at that time... WAMU, American University's uh, station, which features a lot of bluegrass. Katie Daly now works for them. You'll, you would know that. Um, they started programming bluegrass, and Gary Henderson was uh, the GJ there. And uh, we started listening to our that music, my first husband and I, and we loved it. And then um, I got involved volunteering at the station, and then we had a Gary Henderson Day at our house, a big party fundraiser for the station. And so I was into the music and into, sort of into the scene of it, you know. And um, so when I started dating Pete, of course it ratcheted it up to a whole different level, and I just fell in love with him, and so I married him. <laughs> That's all. The D.C. area has such a reputation for bluegrass music, particularly in the 70s when you would have new bands like The Gentleman and The Seldom Scene. What about living in D.C. at that time was so exciting as a bluegrass fan? Well, I lived in Virginia, but that's okay. I mean, when you say the D.C. area, that really is Northern Virginia and Maryland. Uh, It was exciting because all these different bands were coming up, and then, like I say, a premier, couple premier uh, festivals, beginning with Indian Springs, were formed, and so we had we had a really good availability to hear these bands and see these bands. The Birchmere was starting, and uh, so the uh, 
the presenting side of the music was really developing. And once again, I think key to this, in my opinion, anyhow, is that WAMU's Bluegrass Show, Gary Henderson and later Katie Daly and uh, Jerry Gray and, you know, Lee Michael Dempsey and so forth. Uh, it really helped spread the music. I mean, it, you know, it was a very prominent radio station in the D.C. area. Especially in an area that was that densely populated with that variety of people groups being in the nation's capital. Absolutely. That, that had to be invaluable. It was. And also, uh, you have to think about um, the immigration into that area of people from uh, southwestern Virginia, West Virginia, uh, uh, western Maryland. Uh, this was their music. And so there was a place, you know... A, a place for it to grow there because of them and then the rest of us all got you know we heard it we were the benefits of beneficiaries of that and uh, I think the scene just grew the popularity and I loved the music and I'm I'm a person that likes to get involved with things and so because I was doing fundraising and having the parties and all that I really got involved in the music and uh, it's really amazing to me when you look at areas like the DC area or the Baltimore area, or I'm from the Dayton, Ohio area. Right, there's another area. The, De- the Detroit area up in Michigan. When you look at these industrial centers where after World War II, as you mentioned, folks moved up from Kentucky and Tennessee and the Virginias and the Carolinas to find work. They brought their music with them, and now instead of being so spread out over these these states or counties or mountainous regions, they're densely kind of populated where they can kind of get together and have picking parties and work to further the music to new fans that were just right around them and it seems like that was true in the dc area as well it was and uh i think it's really important to put maryland on that list because baltimore and annapolis area all that area they were that was really a very fertile ground for the growth of bluegrass music uh Easily as much as D.C. Yeah, when you got the McCurries and the Paisleys all and the Lundys. Yeah, that's and, right. And so, all so, that. Yeah. And a lot of them when people went to work in the factories and things like that. And uh, that's really how I, I, I have no proof of this. I'm not a sociologist. But I think the people from West Virginia and uh, Western Maryland and Virginia, a lot of them came to work to find work out of the hills. Yeah. Which is what it was. It was out of the hills. Instead of just all working in the mines, they came and they brought their music with them. Yeah. And uh, the uh, the people who went to college and people like that, they liked that music. They adopted it. And uh, uh, I know uh, when I went to college, that at that time, that was all a big thing. We all listened to that music. And so... Where did you go to college? Well, I went to college in Minnesota, a school called Carleton College, which is one of the top liberal arts. I can brag a little about it. One of the top 10 liberal arts colleges in, in the nation. Uh, my, my roots are, uh, I'm an army brat, so... My father was from Minnesota. He met a woman on a blind date who was from Newark, New Jersey, who was totally Italian, first-generation American-Italian, and you got this English guy. And uh, so I'm a combo of that kind of stuff. And uh, as a result of which, I ended up going to college there and everything. But really, uh, I first heard bluegrass and um, folk at college because we had whoever programmed the bands that would come to play must have liked that kind of music. And uh, who was the first bluegrass band you remember seeing in college? Uh, well, it's kind of bluegrass because it was the Kingston Trio. That oh, really cool. doesn't yeah. count, but it was kind of you know. Yeah, folk. it's a step in the right direction yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. And bluegrass friendly. Right. Yeah. But, and then uh, uh, you know, I saw other groups too, but at that time, you're really talking about the music hadn't spread that far north because you're talking in the uh, late 50s early 60s it was starting to but uh, hence you know the weavers i saw the weavers there so it was more folk i saw pete seeger um but that the thing about that music was it brought you back to the roots i mean that's really how i got into bluegrass i kept going back and back and then i'd hear a little a little less more grassy say and on and on until i became a bluegrass fan baby (laughs) you talk about spreading bluegrass music and one of the biggest vehicles in spreading bluegrass music is bluegrass unlimited magazine that was founded by your late husband mr peacock that's correct did he ever talk about um what his goal was in starting bluegrass unlimited 
it, the it's uh, printed right in the magazine. His motto was for the furtherance of bluegrass music. He loved the music. He played the music. He played with the gentleman a little bit, and uh, he played with F- Red Allen and Frank Wakefield, and survived playing with Red <laughs> Allen and Frank Wakefield, I might add. So, he yes, he loved the music, and his mother was a classical pianist and teacher. And when he started listening to this stuff, I think she was horrified, but, you know. <laughs> I suppose she changed him. I don't know if she ever did. But, uh, I mean, that's what he loved. And he met, you know, he was best friends with John Duffy. And some of the, they all lived in the Arlington, Virginia area. And and so the music was uh, really, that was a very important hotbed for this music uh, when it was coming up. And so he just loved the music. And then uh, somehow, oh, I know how, uh, I think it was it was maybe Hazel Dickens or somebody was playing the D.C. area and they didn't know about it. And then somebody else said we should have a newsletter. And Rich, Dick Spotswood was involved with it, Pete, John Caparacus, Gary Henderson, people like that. And someone had a printing press, uh, Alice Gerard, I think it was, who was uh, partners with Hazel in music. If you remember that, you may not, you're young. But... Um, they had this little printing press, so they started putting out newsletters. And then, of course, it was all volunteer, and you know how that goes. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore and everything. So that was when, because Pete was also a songwriter and a music publisher, he got, earned some money because um, uh, Hard Time Killing for Blues, and, uh, he and Dick Spotswood had gone south to look for music, and they discovered all these black blue artists and signed them. So they... Uh, to their publishing Miss, company. Yes, Mississippi John Hurt was one of them, and they started making money for them. And Pete had this money, and he said to his wife one day, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to do a magazine. And he said, after she picked, knocked me down on the floor, <laughs> he didn't say that, but yeah, yeah. theoretically. Yeah. You know, so, and that's what they did. They just took a chance, and they worked very hard, of course. And um, his daughter, Sharon... Uh, worked and worked and worked with them for a long time. She's now re- not does it anymore, but she retired. But uh, they built that magazine into what it is today. It's worldwide. Did he ever talk about any struggles that they faced in the early days of trying to not start too, Bluegrass Unlimited? Not too much with me, but of course one can examine. I know, I know they didn't make a lot of money. Of course, it's you know, and uh, uh, getting getting people to try them. It was newsletter and long form mimeograph thing and then uh, as as they got a little bit of money I think they were able to upgrade how it was produced and uh, and also at that time uh, you know the the, the uh, scene in DC was really growing so the amount of fans were growing for the music and that helped them expand their uh, their reading it had to help to have a, a good core audience right there in his own backyard I th- to build from. I, I never discussed this formally with him, but I believe as one of those members of that audience, I think that's probably what happened. They were able to really expand, and uh, uh, so they did. And then a lot of hard work, going out on the road, going to the little festivals, going traveling all over, just trying to sell that magazine one issue at a time, you know, one subscriber coming in and... Uh, by the time I met him, it was a full-fledged, it was black and white at that time, but a full-fledged magazine. And then uh, he changed the color, and he just kept doing it, and he did a good job. One of my favorite pictures in the uh, the Bluegrass Hall of Fame book that Fred Bartenstein helped put together was of Pete at one of his tables set up selling BUs at a festival, like maybe one of Carlton Haney's festivals or something. Oh, yeah. And it's like, man, you, humble beginnings. We say that so much about the artists, but even in the non-performers, it was hard time starting off trying to build what we now call the bluegrass industry. And not only that, but in reality, he never stopped doing that. He never did stop doing that until, well, I was married to him. We went to festivals. We went... In the summertime, we went every week to festivals, and uh, he he never stopped walking around that table. And he always kind of walked around the table, his head down, doing his business, you know. And I'm jawing away and talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> he was a hard worker. He worked very, very hard. He was passionate about the music, as he was passionate about IBMA, because he's one of the founders of IBMA. Absolutely, we'll we'll get to that here in a second. I got okay. that got it that in my list. But what do you think Bluegrass Unlimited has meant for this industry? Uh, 
we, we won't talk about today because things are changing now. The people aren't reading that much. But I think it was uh, one of the key reasons why the growth came. And it really he really, with that magazine, helped. Because it told you where the music was playing it, when it was being played, who was playing it, stories about not only the stars but the background of the you know the, the whole industry. Uh, he he started a chart, radio chart, uh, all the things they did as the years went by to build up what was in the magazine. And then he, mostly they traveled a lot, just about every week going to a festival trying to sell that magazine. And of course, once the once it spread, it helped. But even so, still. That traveling, I think, is the reason why he succeeded. To me, at least, in in a day before the internet, where if oh, and before cell phones, to have the magazine Bluegrass Unlimited more than anything helped make it more uh, more national, helped connect us all as a community. Versus that, we have the D.C. area crowd, we have the Dayton, Ohio area crowd, we've got the Carolina crowd. We're all in the same boat, you know. Um, I think that more than anything is it helped connect us all. That hey, it helped connect Ohio fans. Say hey, we have something in common with the D.C. fans, and and vice versa. Nashville got to know what was going on in other parts of the country because we're all on the same team, and it helped c- create right. that communication. Well, uh, back then, print print. Media was it, wasn't it? I mean, you had your local, you, you had, had, you had yeah. local stations because uh, the country stations weren't playing much bluegrass, and so it was really the uh, public radio stations that were doing. I at least in our area that was true, and I think uh, I think it was probably true in a lot of areas. I know in Minnesota was true, and I know other places where I lived, and so uh, the magazine because he traveled and he saw all these sort of local bands that regional bands and did stories on them through that magazine he was able to um spread the word about the industry as a whole who was in it who was playing who was hot who you know what stories background stories the, the great little you know walt saunders uh, with his history st- stuff that he puts in uh, murphy sto- of course had all the lo- up to date times the, the schedules so it was kind of it was kind of like the uh, town crier for bluegrass wasn't it for a long long time yeah. really yeah but because we had no other national media no. outlet no. so how else would fans in you know Virginia know about the boys from Indiana, you know, I don't in the Midwest. That's right. There's no other way. No. So uh, with that and the uh, festivals, uh, the growth of the festivals, those two things. But the magazine was key. There's no doubt that is not necessarily true today because we as uh, we've heard in a couple speeches at our convention here things have changed now and the way people get their music and read about it and do everything it's all different but back then that was it and uh maybe local newsletters and things but even the the major papers didn't write a lot about our music yeah and especially that to keep us connected on a national scale exactly and and, in the know it was invaluable well, and you know, if you lived in uh, Oregon and you got the magazine, you you could find out in that calendar. Oh, gee, look who's coming! The seldom seen is coming to play in Oregon. You know, I mean, uh, so word of mouth is good, but that magazine really made a big difference. And and I can say that because I really wasn't involved in it. You know, I was just a I was a reader. So uh, uh, I'm very proud of everything they did. So I've got to ask, what are what are a few of your personal favorite stories or articles from the the catalogs of, of Bluegrass Unlimited? Holy cow. That's a hard question. I'm an old lady now. I don't know if I can remember all this stuff. I I I liked I liked reading the stories that were about Local bands, I didn't particularly see how they came about, but also how some of the big names uh, evolved. But I, I really also enjoyed Walt Saunders. I love Walt Saunders, and I still do. That column is teaches me so much about the history of bluegrass, and uh, I don't know. I just liked them all. I'm, I'm a reader, so... When you think back about all these decades full of BU issues, were there any covers that really jumped out to you? Oh, my gosh. Any pictures that, you know, when you think of BU, you think of seeing so-and-so on the cover? Holy cow. You stumped me, I think. <laughs> I, 
I like the family pictures. So, uh, you know, the family bands. I always liked them. I liked anything John Duffy was in because he was always irreverent. So his, those <laughs> pictures were pretty interesting. It was really cool for me as I got older. We had an old copy of BU from, I think it was, it's in the 1970s. I know Bill Keith was on the cover, but there was an article about my grandpa in there. Oh, so boy. it's really cool that, you know, decades later, I can go read a firsthand account on my grandpa from the 1970s, an article on Moon Mullins as a, yes, as a broadcaster. Oh, that's you know, right. So it was, it's, it's really exciting, and it's such a great resource, these old BU issues. Um, there's another one from, I think it's from the... I don't think it was the same issue. I think this one's from the 1990s when the traditional grass, my dad, oh, my grandpa's yes, band course, was on the cover. And there was an article in that one, I think it's from the early 90s, on um, Arnold Schultz, which I know as a kid, because I read that article on my dad and my grandpa, but then reading one right. on Arnold Schultz, how cool is it that, you know, otherwise, how are folks going to learn about that? And, about yeah, folks like Arnold Schultz, you know, old black blues guitarist that influenced Bill Monroe and no, Merle Travis. That's and, right. And th- th- those are the kinds of things that Pete made decisions about there. I think were really important uh, towards people understand regular people understanding the actual history of bluegrass and the progression of how, you know, it all developed and the influences on Monroe and things like that. Very important. I, I don't know if... Uh, I'm sure it's all out there in streaming and all that stuff now, but it's not quite the same thing because you can pick that copy up if you, you know, now. Yeah. 30 years later, 40 years later, and you can see that, and the memories are still there. And um, we have we have people who never get rid of their beans. Oh, I got cabinets never, full of them. Never. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm proud for him about that. I mean, it's, it, it is without question the most valuable print resource to learn about the history of bluegrass really that, that we've got. Um, so it's, it really it's is. amazing. And uh, I, I, I'm not anti-progress, but picking up a magazine and reading is just a little bit different than holding that screen in front of your face. and Flipping those there's pages. No, there's you know? no tactile uh, enjoyment out of any of that. Your hand gets tired. and you Your eyes get tired. tired everything gets tired. I don't know. You can't change the way people do things, but I think they're good. The older people will miss it. The young kids don't know any better. I guess that's the best way to look at it. But hey, well, well, vinyl came back it's around. It's coming. I know it. So Isn't that Vinyl came back around, so who knows? I, I was really interested to hear about the statistics on all of that because i'm thinking these kids are playing vinyl yeah you know? oh i got well i got my vinyl collection right next to my bu collection so that works out you know, right? there's nothing like listening to vinyl i don't care what anybody says cds are not like vinyl <laughs> that's all there is to it and uh and print and w- once again w- with print you're holding it, it it's a whole thing it's just you turn the page there's pictures and you know it's it's nice it really is it really is Maybe they'll come back to that. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not over powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. We were speaking uh, yesterday, we were visiting, and of course, Pete wrote the bluegrass classic, I Am Weary, Let Me Rest, which is a part of a pretty famous movie soundtrack that we're all familiar with. Why don't you tell us the story that you were telling me yesterday about how I Am Weary, Let Me Rest got included on the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack? uh, Yeah, I'm not sure how T-Bone made that decision, but I, I, I... He came home from work one day. He said, well, I got this phone call today from, I never heard of him, T-Bone Burnett. I said, what? You know, T 
T-Bone Burnett. Yeah, I don't know what he does. He, you know, because Pete was really not savvy about things like that. He was just in his own little bluegrass his, world. His, his, his eye little, was on the prize. His own little bluegrass <laughs> yeah, that's world. Right. I said T-Bone Burnett. He said, "Yeah, they're making some movie or something." Uh, George Clooney is in it. I said, "George Clooney, call them up tomorrow morning and say thank you very much." <laughs> And he did. And the result is a very nice royalty check every month. Because uh, it's in that movie. And that movie is played on television, I would say, I know in our area, at least three or four times a day. Oh, it's a classic. It's a classic. And so he was lucky to have, he wrote that song. And then he had publishing rights on I Am on uh, Hard Time Killing Floor Blues, which is a black blues song that's in the movie, too. And see, uh, that's another thing we we haven't talked about that, but I will talk about it because it's significant. Pete um, and Dick Spotswood, who is a musicologist of some fame, uh, and wrote for us, and really was really was the first editor of Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. Actually, I should say that they, when they were young, they went on a little tour of the South to hear the music and so forth, and they heard all these black blues guys, and they liked. They liked blues. They didn't, you know, they weren't just bluegrassers. And they liked them so much. And, uh, of course, they were always taken advantage of. They weren't paid properly and everything. And so there were a couple of them that Pete really liked. And uh, they wanted to sign them to the uh, publishing company, which they did. What was the name of Pete's publisher? Uh, Winwood Music. Winwood. W-Y-N-W-O-O-D. Music. And... I used to know why it's called Winwood. It was either the name of a street or someone in the family. There's no real rhyme or reason. Winwood music. Some, someone or something <laughs> in the past was named that. Scott <laughs> would know the answer, but he's not here. Anyhow, so um, they, they wanted to record these guys, and, uh, which they did. But in, you know, in order to protect them, they had to copyright as we all know, otherwise, you, and there was no publishing company, so they formed that publishing company. And how were they to know that 30 years later somebody would put that in a movie and it would sell millions of records? Unbelievable. And, um, and of course, the Cox family did a beautiful, beautiful job of singing it because they're fabulous singers. So that was quite, I said, just call him up and say thank you. That's it. And he did, and the rest is history, because they used two of his publishing songs and one he wrote. So, Wow. It's pretty nice, isn't it? That's pretty awesome. It's pretty nice. <laughs> we, we mentioned that Pete was a founding member of the International Bluegrass Music Association, the IBMA. Why did Pete and some of the other founders of the association see a need for us to have a trade association? Well, Pete was a businessman. He wasn't just, he was a musician, and he was a banjo player, so you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> Except that I think banjo players are pretty smart. I happen to think that. But, um, You're partial. Though, I right? am partial. But um, he was a businessman, and, and he knew that he had to protect things, and, and uh, so they did. They figured it all out. Uh, and that was off the cuff, because he didn't go to business school or anything like that, and uh, uh, so the, the 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 first, for example, the first stockholders of Bluegrass Unlimited were really just uh, it was Pete, Dick Spotswood, Alice Gerard. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't Dick Freeland in, Dick, involved? Dick Freeland was no, not in, he wasn't a stockholder. I'm trying to think. There were there's six of them. I can't think of them all, but uh, they were all really people. Oh, John Caparacus, people from that area, from the Maryland, the Maryland Virginia area. They were all involved in the music and and. Uh, uh, it all started, the magazine actually started be, be, because, like I said, somebody missed a show. Well, then somebody else said, well, I have a mimeograph machine. Let's put out a newsletter. And it grew, it grew from that, really, to going all around. I mean, goes to Korea, Seoul, Seoul Korea, you know. Uh, it, that boggles my mind. So all, all those people were all friends, and they were involved in the bluegrass community, and they all got together. And, and um some of them, one of them had the machine, one of them could uh, write pretty good, and you know, and all that sort of stuff, and they just worked together, and that's how it started, and it just grew from there, really. How did, uh, how did Pete's business acumen from running the magazine help in the founding of the International Bluegrass Music Association? How did Pete see a need that we needed a trade association, well, along, along with the other founders? Right, Pete, along with Barry Poss, and I think Dave 
Freeman. I'm trying to think of everybody that was involved in that. Sonny and Sonny, Dole. Sonny and, and Doyle. And Alan Mills. Alan and Mills. Pete. Randall Hilton. Randall yeah. Hilton. And, uh, well, they were looking at the industry. This is what, you know, you know, I wasn't at those meetings, but this is what I'm pretty sure I gleaned from what, how Pete talked around me. They thought that, you know, it was scattered. Let's face it. At that time, the bluegrass industry was pretty scattered because it was lo- more local bands yeah. playing. You A lot had, of these regional you, pockets. You had yeah. very few major stars that were featured. You, know, you had Flat and Scruggs, you had Monroe, and you had Jim and Jesse and the Osborne Brothers, people like that. But for the most part, it was a, a local kind of thing. Uh, you know, you could see a, gr- a groundswell of it growing. So I think they felt like they need some professional people, business people. And uh, they worked hard for that. And to do that, they felt, well, we need a professional organization, which was IBMA, International Bluegrass Music Association is what it stands for. And it was an, to be an industry thing, not a fan. They didn't need a fan thing. There was Spigma was already in existence, I think, at that time. But there were other fan organizations. And, and what they were saying is they didn't need fan organizations. They needed a business organization. And that really was the philosophy behind from what I gather, for, for uh, founding IBMA. We also didn't mention Mac Wiseman. We have no, to mention re- Mac Wiseman was very important that yeah. you're right. Thank you Because he was much. also a founding member of the CMA yes, as he well. Was. So his, and, his and I experience think, was great. Yes, so his expertise was huge. You're right. I'm sorry. I apologize for not mentioning that. Uh, but, you know, he had, you know, good training for this. Uh, so that's what they did. And they decided to call it the International Bluegrass Music Association because they wanted you know, wanted it to be worldwide. They wanted it to be inclusive, I think. I wasn't there, but I'm surmising that. It makes sense. And uh, these people got together, and they started it, and they just said, let's go for it. What were those early years of the IBMA like? Well, they worked hard, and uh, slow, you know, from my memory... It seemed to come together fairly well because you had people from the, it wasn't just somebody from Northern Virginia or from Nashville or whatever. You did have, you had uh, Rounder Records, you had Sugar Hill Records, Rebel Records. You already had some established businesses. You had Bluegrass Unlimited Magazine. So there were some good businesses out there, not counting the the bands that were not, you could say, the, the non-musical side of it. And so they knew what they wanted and they just started doing. I think they just started doing, okay, we're going to do it. And it just uh, grew exponentially. Uh, I'm I'm re- I'm re- thrilled with what's happened. And when when you think how it's growing internationally, I don't know if they ever dreamed that would happen. I I think they they would be thrilled. But I, I was in a, a a conference today at the IBMA's business conference, and there was a broadcaster there from Amsterdam. Exactly. You know, exactly. I'm sure they couldn't have even dreamed that when they were. No, I don't think so. Uh, now, maybe the British Isles and, you know, because it was through music that really comes from that, yeah. you know, that background. But listen, the French loved it. The uh, Dutch loved it. The Italians loved it. The, the Russians loved it. Uh, uh, the Germans loved it. They just liked it. And then, of course, Japan liked it. Oh, now, yeah. Uh, and so... With that, with the association and and what they've built up, the network, you have the Japanese getting involved. Fabulous, you know. And decades later, what's it like seeing the fruits of uh, of the labor of Bluegrass Limited, the IBMA, and seeing how much this music has grown all these decades later? Let's talk about IBMA first. Uh, I think. You're seeing the fruits because when we walk around the halls, you're included in this. I see so many wonderful young people who have a passion for the music. I don't think, I, I'm i not saying that might not have happened, but the in- inclusiveness and the availability for them to meet the older people in the industry and to learn, I think that's made a huge difference. So to me, that's that could be the most important thing IBMA has done over the years is to get all these people together, no matter what the age, who they are female, male, whatever, doesn't matter, and uh, embrace them, feature their music, and encourage them and help through its educational programs. Help it go on to the next generation. Absolutely. Where do you see the future of bluegrass going? Well, I hope it's not all new grass. I like new grass, but I don't want Bill to go away either. So, you know, <laughs> I, well, 
you see it featured on uh, uh, shows that you would never think it would be featured on. Uh, it seems to be growing. Uh, it'll change because all music changes. And, I mean, it's a little more progressive or whatever. But the roots are still there, and the people who like this music, no matter what their educational level is, they like roots things. So I, I can't see anything but good for this. You, you talked about, you know, no matter what their education level is here, you learned about bluegrass in college. We talked about folks that, um, factory workers that like bluegrass. Why, what about bluegrass attracts such a diverse crowd and a diverse audience? People from all different backgrounds seem to like this the music. music. The music's just good. You know, I, also, I forgot to mention uh, my parents listened to the Grand Ole Opry, too. Oh, okay. So uh, that's important. When I was a kid, you know, we, all, we didn't have television. We had radio. And they listened to the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, on Saturday afternoon, they listened to the Metropolitan Opry. And on Saturday night, they listened to the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> you, you, you had it all over the I place. No all... wonder you're so messed up. Right? <laughs> I messed up completely. <laughs> Trying to sing La Travietta bluegrass style is a little hard. But anyhow, um, so... Radio must have helped a little bit because I mean, the Grand Ole Opry didn't wasn't all bluegrass, but certainly it was on there. And then uh, uh, I think the migration, don't you think so? Uh, you had these uh, p- the people migrating to the steel mills and all the different you know all the different northern employment that was there, and they brought their music with them because it really mostly was a southern music. Uh, I think in the beginning, I you know, uh, so. With with their music came their food, their music, their lifestyle, you know, and when they moved like that, uh, similar to what happened when the Italians came over or the German, you know, the food became part of that district and their music too. Um, and as they migrated for jobs, it all came with them. I mean, the auto industry, all that, this music came with them. And so just like country music, which we're, really it's an umbrella. Yeah. We're, we're under that umbrella, in my opinion, anyhow. Uh, it all came, and it just spread, and then more people heard it, and then this, the, uh, quote, sophisticated people discovered they liked it, too. <laughs> and yeah, Pete Seeger might have had something to do with this, too. Mm-hmm. I know Mike did, but uh, Pete... Yeah, a, Mike, Mike Seeger, Pete's brother, is a member of the Bluegrass Hall of absolutely. Fame. Absolutely. But Pete Seeger with, uh, and uh, all those folk guys, you know, the Kingston Trio. There was a banjo in the Kingston Trio. Um that that uh, idea that you could listen to that kind of music as opposed to uh, ASCAP, you know, Metropolitan stuff, it spread all over the place. And so people who were just uh, in college, co- listen, the colleges, were, that was an important scene at that time. Well, and and if, you, if you're a fan of Pete Seeger or Bob Dylan, you're not too far removed to no. like in the Stanley Brothers and Doc Watson. No, you're not at all. <laughs> On the contrary, I think... I th- I think Really, uh, what we can say is that genre of music is sort of a wide umbrella, but underneath it was all this sort of folk-tinged kind of stuff with the inst- those instruments. and uh, Just like how in present day, folks that like, you know, Mumford & Sons and Old Crow Medicine Show aren't too far away from liking Del McCurry and the Osmond Brothers. As a matter know. of fact, they probably... Most of them already do. They already but- do. So uh, now it might be a little difficult to swing the other way, but... but I think uh, the kids and the and the middle aged people, or they're all like, they understand that it's a big umbrella, and we give everybody a chance, and and, and none of it hurts. It's all good for the music. So, uh, I guess that's, I guess all I can say about that subject. What about this music in particular has made folks like you and Pete so passionate about it? What what hooked you in at an early age about this music? Well, Pete is early. Because he was by the time he was playing with Red Allen, and he was eighteen or something. Uh, <laughs> That'll mess anybody up, no. won't it? <laughs> well, you got that right. Whoops. Uh, anyhow, uh, he survived. Let's, let's rephrase this. He survived playing with Red Allen. Do you have any good Red Allen stories from Pete that you mind sharing? I, I don't. I didn't know him then, and he didn't share too many stories about Red Allen and Frank Wakefield. I think it was an interesting band. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been to protect the innocent, right? I think you're right, particularly him. <laughs> uh, no, he didn't really tell me too much about all that. Um, uh, but I just like this. I like the sound of it. I don't know. And once again, I have to say, I was an Army brat, so a lot of the armed services uh, radio, when I was overseas, there was a lot of country western and, uh, and even 
because I was, uh, it was already started by the time I was old enough to hear, there was some bluegrass on there, and, you know, I heard I heard this music, and I, I really liked, of course, rock and roll and Ray Charles and all those people, but it's all roots music, and it's all kind of connected, and if, if they're good at it, it's good music, and I, I guess for me, when I got to be into my um, late 20s and 30s was when I, I'd have to say WAMU really inf- influenced me a lot in choosing the music I listened to, and uh, it turned out to be bluegrass music. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about bluegrass music? Hicks. They're all hicks, you know? You, you hear that, oh, you know, that's that twangy stuff, that hick stuff, and, and then I like to educate them, and I do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I think that the stereotypes get built up in anything. We we both know that, and and that hick thing. It was true for Western country, Western too. Country music, you know, for a while, uh, not for a while, for a long time. Uh, oh, I don't listen to that stuff, you know. But that's changed. It's all changed now. I will say this: uh, certainly, country's become more metropolitan, but uh, and even some grass has too. But Everybody I knew who was fairly well-educated, they liked that music. And so that helped because they were hearing it. The colleges were hiring the bands. They were coming in, 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 you know, the Kingston. Certainly, really true in the folk world, more true in the folk world at that time. But when you look at a band like the Seldom Seen from the D.C., John Starling's a surgeon. Ben Eldridge is a mathematician. Exactly. Anything but... A bunch of hillbillies. Tom Gray was a uh, cartologist. Uh, uh, I guess that's the right word. I think that's yes, right. <laughs> I think it's right. Um, well, yes, and uh, that was the other thing. We don't talk. We probably don't talk too much about this, and maybe we do. That I, I just don't hear it. This music is accessible, no matter what you do for a living. So. All those kids learning how to, oh, I love the guitar, I'm going to play, the mandolin sounds good. They, they all got together, and a lot of them never became commercial bands, but they loved the music. And so the ones who did become commercial bands had a good outlet for their music to be heard and sold and bought. And uh, it, definitely in the D.C. area. Of course, I'm saying that all the time because that's where I live, but... Um, there's no doubt about it. We uh, we had uh, some big names come out of there in the country world. The old Jimmy Dean, uh, Roy Clark. Uh, I can name others. Uh, and Roy, well, even if you fast forward, Roy Clark played uh, you know, uh, Emmy Lou Harris, Emmy and Lou, Linda Ronstadt, yeah, Mary Chapin Carpenter grew up going they, to the Berkshire. That's right. That's yeah. right. So. Um, you know, it's it's a music that for many is a background, but increasingly it's becoming uh, a music of choice for an awful lot of people. And uh, the radio helped, public radio helped a lot because it was willing to play that music. Uh, uh, country music, not so much. Those stations don't play it, still don't really play that music. Yeah, not for the past few decades as no, much. No, not as long as I've been yeah. alive. Not cor- on, on, on a corporate mainstream no, level. No, not yeah. as long. I've never, I've never heard WMZQ play anything. Uh, although if Katie Daly were here, she could set me straight because she worked for. But I don't. Th- I think she'd agree with me. They had. They might have had a bluegrass show. I'm trying to remember about that, but it was country music. But that's okay because. Uh, I think people hear a certain kind of music, and then if they hear the next thing that's very similar, they they grow to like it. Uh, I don't know how you can't like bluegrass myself, but <laughs> I I certainly did. I mean, I was a rock and roll babe. That's what I liked, you know. Fats Domino and uh, Ray Charles, and, and you know, I'm a girl of the '50s, so that's what I liked. But I also discovered that I liked the the roots music, and part of the roots music was bluegrass. And, and if you like the the passion and the soul and the intensity with which Ray Charles sings. Jimmy Martin has all those same characteristics in the way he sings. Exactly. So uh, if you get exposed to it, I don't see how you can not help but like it. I just don't. (laughs) Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. 
Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. You mentioned that, that you and Pete, when promoting Bluegrass Unlimited, traveled around to a lot of different parts of the country, a lot of different festivals. In your travels with Pete, what are some of your best uh, stories from the road with Pete? Oops. Can I tell them? I don't know. Anything goes. Well, my my favorite festival to go to and watch was anything Melvin Goins was doing. I absolutely adore Melvin Goins. He amuses me. I mean, he's a really nice guy, great guy. But he's so funny, and he's so... I love Melvin Goins. <laughs> he 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 was such a such a key character. Is he the in one this that movie? said that'd be an identical place for a bluegrass festival? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> how can you not love a man who says that? No, but I, what I liked the most about it was meeting all the people. I love meeting all these people and getting to know their culture and why they like the music and who they are and where they come from. And so, if you're traveling, and I. I I know bands are really busy when they're on the road. They may not have time. But I know darn well they meet a lot of people and get the same vibes. And and that's what helps keeping them going right there, just playing for those people. And so sitting at my table, you know, trying to sell the magazine to somebody, uh, I met a lot of interesting people and uh, colorful and and very nice. Very few people were not nice. That's one thing that is true about bluegrass as an industry. I think so. Is the community of bluegrass, it's almost like they realize we're all in this together. Well, and I think that goes back to the whole thing that it's a form of music which was not, quote, popular. You know, it wasn't played on the radio all the time uh, in most places. And certain areas, of course, where it was the music of the land it was, but... Uh, didn't hear that much music, uh, bluegrass music on the radio in my area until WAMU came along, at least not where, you know, on my stations that I had. So uh, there's another reason why I think it's spread, the actually being heard on the radio. And uh, I don't know. I can't imagine anybody not liking that music. What was Pete like to travel with? Dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Pete was Pete was Pete was passionate. He was passionate. He was a hard worker. He was was he I never had any trouble traveling with Pete. I always had a lot of fun with Pete and uh but um I think in the early days when I didn't know him, uh he worked so hard. I mean I think he was driven, so I don't know although his wife worked with him. You might if you ask the children, you might get you know, his children that are not mine. Uh because they went, they worked. I mean, if you talk to them, they might say something a little different. But I don't think so. They've got a good livelihood out of it, and they had fun, and they met great people. But, of course, wasn't around them. But I like traveling with them. Now, I believe you've told a story before about being on a plane with Pete and flying to see Earl Scruggs. Is that true? Oh, my God. We did. And he wanted to show him... I'm not an artist, but there was something about the banjo. He had this banjo. He had to go see Earl Scruggs with this banjo. We went there. We flew to Nashville. He has the banjo. We're sitting in Earl's living room, and I'm just sitting there, you know. And they've got this banjo out. they got paper they're sliding under. They're doing all this stuff for hours. I sat there for hours watching this. And they finally came up with one little decision about something. Talk about two passionate men. <laughs> Hours looking at a two strings on a banjo. Well, it amused me. I'm sociologically interested in things like this, and so I'll never forget it. It was about three hours. <laughs> Maybe it was only 20 minutes, but it seemed like three hours. That love for banjo players you had was starting oh, to kind of to, to tick down a little I, bit. What? Was, <laughs> you were really starting to rethink this really? marrying a banjo player. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Fifth string, fourth string, sliding papers. 
they had a good time and was fine with me. I, I, you know, have a sense of humor, so it kind of. What are some other crazy stories that you have with Pete in the world of Pete. bluegrass? Oh gosh, I used to just like watching him sort of slup around the table and do things, and all these people would come up and he'd just do his job. And I'm thinking, this man is Pete Kuykendall. And, you know, he's slipping around doing his job. And he was very passionate about his work and sure wanted everything to be right. And, and he was a fine banjo player. I liked listening to him play. He was just a nice man. He had issues like everybody else, but, you you know, it was okay. So did I. Um, I just enjoyed the whole scene. I mean, it was a whole new world for me. Uh you know, you're changing your entire life in your 40s, and all of a sudden you're out there and doing all this and meeting all, meeting wonderful people, and his friends were interesting, and I don't know, I liked it. I could tell you're pretty adventurous, so that really had to, to just be a blast. Why not take a chance? Yeah. <laughs> it was a good chance. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it hadn't been a good chance. <laughs> so, uh, no, it was really... Um, and, and I have to be honest and say it wasn't easy always living with Pete because, like I said, he was a bipolar personality and uh, he was driven when he was and uh, that was his passion. He had a passion for that. And you just had to figure out how to handle that. And of course, the magazine was the same thing when you talk about taking a chance on a bluegrass magazine and quitting your job, a uh, day job. I think his wife was very brave when they did that. And um I mean, I'm impressed with that. Yeah. He was a true American entrepreneur. He really mm-hmm. was. Yeah. He was a nice guy. And uh, the IBMA part of it, I mean, what he did, that was very important. Uh, a lot of the kids today don't know, of course, don't know about him, but uh, they should. Yeah. He was, Absolutely. He was a, one of the best pioneers we have in the music. That's right. Yeah. He really was. Yeah. Had to be a heck guy. of a husband, too. He was a lovely husband to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I wouldn't know people like you that changed my entire life. Oh. He did. He changed my entire life. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm grateful for that. Oh. Well, we're grateful for you. Grateful for you to chat with me a well, little bit. It's so kind of you to even consider it. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm having a wonderful time at our uh, convention here. And I'm hearing, I'm so happy because I'm hearing great young people pick. And I can see that passion Pete had for the music is being passed down through all of these people somehow. And uh, I don't see anything but good days ahead for Bluegrass. Now, print magazine, that's another story. But, you know, we all, we go with the flow. And uh, anyhow, so... So if anybody's listening to this and they'd like to take a subscription to my magazine, I encourage it. Yeah. It's a great magazine. <laughs> it is. It's the Bible of Bluegrass. It is it's the Bluegrass Bi- is Rolling Stone. The Bible of Bluegrass, but all in all, anyhow. Thank you so much for talking with me, Daniel. Kitsy Kuykendall, our special guest on this fifth episode of season two of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Uh, Kitsy is a bona fide bluegrass queen, and it was a real treat to have her on the show today. It was. It's great to know that we're making some progress, uh, knocking out this second season. We're probably not quite halfway through and got some great uh, episodes yet to come, but I really loved I thought it was a, a fascinating uh, history that uh, Kitsy was able to give us. I think it's great that we are able to interview or you're able to interview a lot of these uh, folks that aren't necessarily artists, but have done so much for the bluegrass community and for the genre in general. And I was really fascinated by hearing the uh, historical context of Kitsy and, and, and t- talking about Pete originally uh, what uh, began to give birth to the magazine was uh, him uh, researching and recording a lot of uh, Southern black blues artists. And I think that that was um, one of the catalysts for the creation of a magazine uh, like Bluegrass Unlimited. I thought that was a fascinating story uh, that she talks about him going and exploring different artists in the Southeast and falling in love with them and, and eventually taking that love to his Bluegrass publication, which became as we like to say, the Rolling Stone of Bluegrass. <laughs> That's right. In an era before the internet, um, BU 
was one of the primary ways by which bluegrass was unified as a uh, as a national scene. You could learn about what was going on in different parts of the country within bluegrass. And a day before, you could get on Facebook or go look up uh, one of your favorite bluegrass websites. It was the primary vehicle by which bluegrass fans were united and informed. So it's, its historical relevance in the history of bluegrass music cannot be overstated. Yeah, I mean, it was a resource for who was playing where and what festivals you could go see. Uh, Dudley Connell in the last episode was talking, or the episode before last was talking about um, how he discovered the uh, Ralph Stanley uh, Festival that he went to by seeing it listed in Bluegrass Unlimited. And just a great community resource, uh, the Bluegrass Unlimited chart, which is just now celebrating, I believe, this year, 30 years of the Bluegrass chart, was a great way to build our community in the sense that it was a great way for bluegrass music programmers to have a source to see you know what songs and albums are getting played and what was coming out new from particular artists so that was a great way for uh, the community to be strengthened too everybody knew what was getting played what songs were hot what albums were hot what festivals were happening um it's a little bluegrass bible for so many years Absolutely. BU, it's even it's so fascinating and, and fun to go back and read articles because they were firsthand accounts of what was hot in bluegrass at that time. It's such a great historical res- uh, resource. I know several years ago I was doing research on the J.D. Crow album Rounder 0044, and it was really fun to go back and read the original review of that album from 1975. Um, it, it was neat seeing what folks thought about that album then uh, and then all these decades later to see how the review stood up. It's a, it's a fun activity. You mentioned Dudley Connell talking about BU. Sierra Hall, a generation or two later, same thing. She was flipping through BU, learned about Merle Fest and saw that Allison Krauss was playing there and uh, they had to go to that show and the rest is history. So it's been such a great resource for so many generations of bluegrass fans. Uh, I know that there's some great articles. I, I talked to, to Kitsy about uh, the Arnold Schultz article from, uh, I think it's a 1990 edition. Uh, I think it was the first time Paul Mullins and the traditional grass were on the cover. So we've got a copy of uh, several of those around the house. And I remember as a kid, when I was old enough to flip through and read one of those old issues, and there was a great story in there. You know, of course, the traditional grass story was awesome. But the story about uh, Arnold Schultz was fascinating because I was a, a teenager and I'd heard about him, but to read more in depth about his influence on Monroe and his music was was great, and it's still a great resource all these years later. What are some of your favorite stories or, or covers or issues of Bluegrass Unlimited, Ty? Well, just in general, it's hard to say which favorite story or a favorite you know cover was. Just in, it's always been in general so valuable to me to have copies of that magazine, have a subscription because it's a time capsule. You know, it's uh, if you go back to all the years that it's been in print, there's so many. Especially if you can look at people that have collected the magazine over the years, you can go back and look at stories uh and articles about you know there's been countless stories about the pioneers and all the groups since and i love the sections in the front where they talk about um earlier versions of bands and sort of you make the connection between who played with who and uh from a just really a folklorist standpoint it's just really great content and information for you to keep up with all these uh groups that have, have existed that for the most part, you've made not heard of a lot because they didn't, you know, become one of the top ten groups for a decade or so. But uh, there's just so much depth and history, and Bluegrass Unlimited has always been so great about keeping track of and reporting and sharing that depth and history. To me, that's the biggest value. Bluegrass Unlimited, a true uh, treasure trove of bluegrass knowledge and information for any bluegrass music fan. We encourage you to uh, check them out online, bluegrassmusic.com, bluegrassmusic.com, where you can learn more, read some uh, articles, and you can subscribe. Be sure to help them out and keep this historic Bluegrass Music publication going. Next week on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, we talk with uh, one of my favorite folks and one of my good buddies in the world of bluegrass, Mr. Skip Cherry Holmes. That's right. One of my good friends, too. And uh, we talk about the history of the Cherry Holmes band all the way to what uh, Skip is up to these days with uh, the group he plays with now. 
Steve Dilling and Sideline and all the boys there. And it's a really great story. It's a two-parter. And uh, I think it's it's worth listening to both of those episodes. Absolutely. Uh, Skip's got a great history, a great perspective. And uh, this is the story of the um, how the Cherry Homes Band emerged and also just Skip's philosophy and values. Definitely well worth listening to both of those episodes coming up the next couple weeks. And not to give too much away, but for folks that may not be familiar with the history of the Cherry Holmes family, of course I was, but I learned a lot sitting down with Skip for this interview. The phenomenon of the Cherry Holmes family, Bluegrass had never seen anything like it, and I don't know if we will see a story quite like theirs ever again. In 2005, they were nominated for Emerging Artist of the Year and one Entertainer of the Year at the IBMA Awards for a band that came out of absolutely nowhere to just plumb take over uh, a genre was truly remarkable. They were fantastic. If you ever got to see them live, you you never forgot it. And learning more about their family, their history, and uh, more about this uh, really impactful band in the uh, early 21st century for bluegrass music was a ton of fun, and it's quite the ride. So you definitely want to check out part one of my interview with my buddy Skip Cherry Holmes next week on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Go to wallsoftimepodcast.com where you can listen and subscribe. Uh, You can also check us out on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. And you can also go to wallsoftimepodcast.com to buy our exclusive Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast t-shirts. That's it. Help us by buying a t-shirt. Be sure to listen to our updated playlist of all this great music that we're going to keep putting on our Walls of Time Podcast Spotify playlist. And also find us on social media, Walls of Time Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. We'll catch you next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.